Hi, thanks so much for um, inviting me, uh, Carol. It's really nice to be here today. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, what I think is a bit of a gloomy topic, actually, but hopefully we can get some kind of um, positive energy out of this. I want to discuss today the subjective experience of anxiety, um, and that's specifically within the UK's um, higher education sector. And I'm going to be looking at uh, the experiences of fixed term or casualised staff uh, to do this. Um, and whilst anxiety is uh, ordinarily experienced on a kind of intensely individual level, um, I want to make an argument that we should try and understand it in two different ways. So firstly, I'm going to be talking about anxiety as a kind of symptom um, of the wider conditions under which we're all working in universities today. But then I want to go on to talk about anxiety as a kind of tactic of governance. Um, and this is partly because I want to gesture towards um, issues of things like compliance, but also uh, more broadly uh, the notion of the public university, if that still exists. Um, so I think probably everybody here is uh, more than familiar with the wider context um, in which we're working. So these processes of expansion, marketization, audit have transformed the landscape um, of British universities. Um, but this is a kind of long arc, so I'm certainly not making a case that this is something that's only just happened. We've you know, been going through these processes for several decades, in fact, now. Um, and I think we can uh, make an argument to say that the teaching and research activities of academics are increasingly being scrutinised, but these processes, to my mind anyway, have kind of accelerated quite recently. So I'm thinking, um, of course, of the REF, but then of the TEF. Now we have the KEF. We're running out of kind of letters in the alphabet here. Um, and of course, the um, establishment of the Office for Students is a kind of new regulatory, slightly Orwellian body. Um, now, we know from existing studies, I'm thinking particularly of the work of people like Gail Kinman, um, that these kinds of processes have a negative impact on health and well-being. And we can see, I think, in the reaction of um, HEIs, so universities themselves, that there is a kind of interest in this concept of well-being, but I'm going to sort of problematise that a little bit in a second as well, because I think the way in which well-being is framed uh, is somewhat of a red herring. So increased workload, competition, constraints on our time, uh, the need to recruit adequately, all of these different things coming together to make an environment um, in which you know many of us are beginning to feel quite stressed at the least, and some of us are beginning to be maybe quite unwell. Um, and in fact, um, Hall and Bowles have described the university as a kind of anxiety machine. So this is probably a concept quite familiar to many of you already. Um, this was back in 2014, but the UCU did a survey and they found that uh, 20, sorry, 79% of academic staff agreed with the notion, I find my job stressful. Um, but when we think about what happens in terms of fixed term staff, these things tend to be kind of uh, even more intensely felt. Uh, so the most recent HESA data we have uh, is from 2016-17. 
um, which says that 34% of academic staff are working on fixed-term contracts. I imagine Jonathan might say something about this later, uh, because the UCU have found that if we include atypical a contracts into that equation, um, we're probably looking at around 50% of academic staff being on fixed-term contracts. Um, and actually, there's a great website here in case anybody's interested, the institution snapshot where you can see just how bad your own institution <laughs> is doing. Um, quite bad in my case, actually. Um, so we know that all staff are under pressure. There are particular concerns that I'm going to talk to you uh, today in terms of uh, precarious staff. So. The casualization that happens within universities is part of this wider context of um, precarity. And at least I would like to make this into a kind of political issue. I don't think this is a problem of the individual. I think we have to think about you know, the kind of wider context in which this is happening. Even the kind of phrase fixed term is rather um, neutral, a little banal. It, does, you know, it, it doesn't really tell us much about what's happening. And it's interesting how there's a kind of resistance to the language of uh, casualization in some areas. So for me, it's important to use the language of casualization and precarity, which the participants in my project did quite frequently, because it tells us something about this being a political issue rather than just a problem of the individual employee. So that's kind of a note on how I have been conceptualizing this myself. Um, so, the project involved uh, 44 different participants. I began kind of back in 2014, um, when interestingly there was very little kind of current research on the issue. It seemed to be something of a niche issue, it was something that maybe um, early career researchers were interested in, and that early career category is problematic as well. But it seemed to be more like the problem of people uh, like me who were on these kind of casualized contracts. And so after kind of countless uh, conversations and a kind of almost unbearable sense of anxiety myself, which hasn't gone away, um, I decided to kind of try and make sense of what was happening um, in my own predicament in a kind of uh, intellectual way. Also almost that classic sort of uh, C. Wright Mills, um, private troubles, public issues thing. So I recruited with no difficulty at all, uh, 44 <laughs> participants who were quite eager to uh, pour out their troubles to me. And interestingly though, this was from postdoctoral level. So the most junior participant was about two days out of their PhD but it went all the way up to professor. So the two most senior participants in my project were full professors, but were employed on fractional fixed term contracts. And this also has to do with other kinds of structural issues, which I'll touch on in a second. So it's quite easy just to say that this is a problem for more junior colleagues, but actually it's quite a hidden problem in terms of going right across uh, different levels of seniority. Um, and I also talk to people who are in, in different kinds of roles, so teaching only, research only, teaching and research. And they were in different disciplines, social sciences, arts, humanities, um, uh, life sciences, um, and different kinds of institution as well. Uh, now, I try to take a kind of uh, more longitudinal approach because I think part of the issue with 
casualization is just to kind of see a momentary thing you know you, you look at what's happening now and you say oh well maybe they got a job a month later and everything was fine so i ended up doing a hundred interviews in kind of three waves with the participants so um inevitably some of them fell off as we as we went along it was over a kind of two-year period but I wanted to try and track uh, not just the different contractual arrangements of the individual participants, but also how they were feeling. Um, I'm very interested in you know, the connection between these sort of subjective emotional experiences and kind of the wider conditions in which we're working. So I wanted to see what happened as people kind of chopped and changed across different kinds of contracts you know, as they inevitably got kind of worn down by that constant uh, needing to sort of be a perfect candidate. And so I think, uh, not surprisingly, one of the main things to emerge from the research was the theme of anxiety. And so I want to think a little bit now about anxiety as a symptom of a problem. And the problem, as I see it, is these kind of wider processes that are happening in higher education, so what I mentioned uh, just now. While we often think of anxiety as being a kind of personal shortcoming, so it's sometimes framed as a kind of failure to deal with the demands of a competitive environment, a stressful job, maybe it's a lack of competency, you know, you're not cut out to do this kind of work, or an inability to cope with the demands. Um, Following uh, David Smale, the psychologist, I've been trying to think about sort of the significance of anxiety. So thinking about anxiety as a symptom of what's happening in what I would describe as the neoliberalising sector. And I know that the kind of definition of the neoliberal university is somewhat contested, but I think we can uh, begin to think about the wider processes that are happening as a kind of process of neoliberalisation. <coughs> So anxiety is symptomatic of what's going on in the sector, and my apologies for inflicting this document upon you, um, but I wanted to gesture towards the government white paper, Success as a Knowledge Economy, um, because I think it sets out very clearly what's happening in the sector right now, and obviously this um, underpins the um, Higher Education and Research Act that was passed last year. So the document says competition between providers in any market incentivizes them to raise their game, offering consumers a greater choice of more innovative and better quality products and services at lower cost. And higher education is no exception. And so I think this really shows the way in which the government seeks to make competitive uh, a public sector which uh, they have portrayed, at least in this document, as being composed of incumbents. Um, and curiously, in this document, there's almost no mention of academic staff. So what we have is providers, and then we have consumers. And then in the middle, there's sort of nothing, really. So it, it, it seemed interesting to me that those involved in the delivery of this product, this excellent product, are kind of very much absent from this discussion. And so I wondered what the effects were of raising our game. What does that mean for us as academic employees? And so I think we can think also of anxiety as being symptomatic 
of the nature of precarious work. And this for me was kind of quite an obvious point and, and no doubt would be if you also have kind of been through that uncertainty um, of casualized work, but it creates kind of insecurity, uncertainty, anxiety. Uh, one of my participants, for example, described uh, precarious work as a kind of looming feeling, a heaviness, a weight on his mind. Um, something else that I, I wanted to kind of gesture towards was the way in which factors, wider factors um, such as gender, ethnicity, disability, social class background and age intersect to affect not only the experience of casualized work but also the possibility of then getting permanent work. So we can't discount other things that are happening in the sector. I'm thinking in particularly of gender pay gap, BME pay gap, these other things that are happening from the experience of casualization. So it's all very well to frame fixed-term work as uh, flexible and that might work for some employees, but you really do have to have some kind of financial safety net in order for that to be a kind of viable flexibility. And in fact, with the case, with, I would say almost all of my participants was uh, flexibility was actually terrifying rather than something uh, convenient. So the interviews were kind of suffused with this anxiety. Um, many of the participants I spoke to described feelings of fatigue. You, you probably also have these kinds of feelings too. Stress. Um, but in a few serious cases, um, a couple of the participants had actually been signed off work with mental ill health. Um, I think about four participants described being in a state of what could be a, a kind of breakdown. So there are quite serious implications here um, of these kinds of working conditions. And I've just put this um, quilt, uh, quote from Rosalind Gill up here because I like how she kind of gestures towards privatised anxieties as being part of a wider discourse of individualism. So in a sense, the anxiety becomes the problem just of the individual employee. And it is a kind of intensely visceral and often isolating experience to have to deal with this. So it can very much feel as if it is your own problem. But interestingly, in work that she's done with um, Donahue, um, she talks about how academics increasingly are being encouraged to take personal responsibility for their stress, their uh, mental ill health, um, their anxieties, for example, by doing things like uh, participating in well-being workshops. So what's happening here is the encouragement to work on the self. It's your problem, you deal with it, rather than a kind of consideration of these wider conditions which are so problematic in generating these feelings in the first place. So I think that's quite important to gesture towards at my own institution, for example, they've started doing things like um, inviting stressed out students to, you know, spend an hour kind of cuddling puppies. So, I mean, it's nice to cuddle a puppy, but, you know, what's, what's really going on there? So, um, this kind of self-work, I think, is interesting because it fails to challenge these wider conditions that I'm talking about, which precipitate kind of detrimental experiences in the first place. So this is 
me kind of setting up the anxiety is, you know, it shows us that something's going wrong here. So um, I wanted to show you um, just a few quotations from the interviews that I conducted. Um, so in addition to these anxieties which are associated more generally with academic work, um, we have to take into consideration the additional financial pressures of having no certainty over your contract, um, an inability to kind of adequately plan for the future, and I think perhaps the next paper is going to talk more closely about that sort of short-termism. There was a fear of being beholden to specific individuals or institutions, and that is also problematic in terms of some of the research that's happening right now on things like sexual harassment in the sector. So there is a real concern about what happens if you are really beholden to one person for your uh, PhD or indeed your uh, career. And there's also a kind of stigmatisation or marginalisation which comes with being a kind of temp. So Roxy, for example, here, uh, she was on a teaching-only contract and she says, you know, it's your colleague's name with the more permanent contract on the door. And it's just psychological crap that just makes you feel a bit like, God, I'm a real loser. And that really was something that kind of underpinned many of my interviews, people kind of feeling, you know, as if they had no kind of value within their institutions at all. They were just sort of paid help, you know, for seminar teaching. Uh, not surprisingly, the process of job hunting uh, loomed very large over these 100 interviews. And for those who were seeking to find work or funding or just trying to kind of um, make permanent their temporary positions, there was a real kind of pressure to craft a sort of successful entrepreneurial self. Um, and this, of course, generated a lot of kind of anxiety, so particularly uh, a tendency to overcommit to become the perfect academic, you know, the kind of superstar academic you see on Twitter who's just gained more funding and has a new publication, has just been promoted. So these kinds of things, uh, we, you know, we tend to kind of see more than, and I'll talk more about this in a second, the kind of failures or the more difficult kind of uh, aspects of the job. And some of the participants had had very painful experiences in terms of job hunting. So Carla, for example, had been signed off work with a stress-related illness when we spoke for the second time. Um, she had literally just come from her GP to speak to me. And her experience of an interview process, interviewing for a job she was already doing at her own institution, where she was told in advance of the interview that she wouldn't be successful um, because she didn't have uh, the American pedigree that the successful candidate had. So, of course, then she concluded, you know, it's not a meritocracy that we're working in. Um, Pedro here was another um, victim of an unsuccessful interview process, which he also felt um, had kind of discrepancies. Um, he says, uh, he asked for feedback after the interview, and the feedback was all about, you had this chance, you blew it, Next time, do better, and that's what you get. I could have done better, I'm going to do better, and then I learn my lesson. Next time, I'm going to be better. So it was interesting to me that, you know, I'm talking to academics, so everybody is aware of this process of neoliberalisation that I'm talking about. It's not sort of surprise. People kind of know what's happening. Yet there's still the acknowledgement of the necessity of having to engage 
in these processes, you know, to present yourself as somebody who is competent and worthy of this kind of academic work. And partly that's to do with, you know, those discourses around do what you love and, you know, which kind of exacerbate these tendencies. And so I think Pedro's quote here really kind of encapsulates for me this idea of the enterprising self. So not only is he incited to do better in future interviews, but in fact he needs to be a better person. So the entrepreneurial academic is kind of an idealised but also a responsibilised subject. You must take responsibility for doing better and being a better person. Um, but interestingly for me, one of the kind of major findings of the research um, was that very little personal responsibility was taken in the case of success. So um, I have a quote here from David. Um, David had been in a very kind of low position the first time we talked and um, he had not really been doing well at all. He'd had multiple kind of uh, rejections for funding and jobs. But the second time we spoke, he'd actually just been awarded a really prestigious postdoc. So this was kind of, you know, a great moment for him. So we kind of discussed how he felt about it. And he says, it's funny because when somebody else has a success, I don't think they were lucky. I think they were fucking good. And the underlying unspoken message there is that they are so much better than me to come back to something we were talking about before, competition. So this happened right across the wider project for me and it wasn't something I was exactly anticipating. But um, there was a tendency amongst the participants to construe success merely as being a matter of luck or chance. So I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I just happened to be the lucky candidate. It was chance that, you know, I happened to get this funding. Um, but when it came to failure, the participants consistently individualized and responsibilized these failures and setbacks. So I should have anticipated this. I should have worked harder. I should have done more. So there was this real kind of tension between taking no responsibility for good things, but always claiming responsibility for the bad. Um, and kind of the most agentic aspect of many of the narratives was this kind of claiming of responsibility. So for example, Peter, a postdoc, talked about, I am my own obstacle. And in the case of David, um, he is merely good enough, but all of the other candidates are fucking good. So this was something kind of interesting for me. So given these kinds of wider uh, structural constraints, I think it's not really surprising that the participants feel as if they have really no agency, they have no control over their circumstances. And one of the most common responses to this feeling was overwork, chronic overwork. So people working all of the time, never taking holidays and feeling that any kind of, you know, uh, rest from work was somehow kind of laziness. And of course, uh, this has a real impact upon health and well-being. And the pressure of employment insecurity uh, became very difficult for some of the participants to manage. So these kinds of uh, pressures uh, were not always um, easily kind of contained. So this was uh, David again before he had his good news. I asked him um, about his future plans and he said there is no planning. 
I bet it's making me think about life in a very specific way and I don't even know how to put it into words but I'm flirting with the idea of not bothering with a career. I keep focusing on the negative stuff, the stress, the competition, the anxieties, the insecurities about being in this particular job and I feel the more I get myself into it the more this will come into play rather than the opposite. So maybe I'm just rationalising in a way that I can then get to the conclusion that it's not worth staying in. So it was interesting to me that this complete inability to plan, to tell what was going to happen in the future, uh, meant that there was no possibility of any kind of uh, future planning, there was no kind of rational calculation. So what kind of emerges is a sort of uh, neurotic anticipation based on worst case scenarios. I'm never going to find a job. I'm never going to get funding. I'm never going to get that research published. And sort of career strategies built on this kind of very tenuous what if, because you never know what's going to happen. So how are you supposed to strategize? So um, following the sociologist Nick Rose, I began to think about how anxiety is uh, experienced at the individual level, but in fact it becomes a kind of tactic of governance. And precarity makes resistance to these tactics almost impossible. And one of the effects of this is a kind of exit from the sector, a market exit in fact. And I think this is arguably part of the built-in logic of the neoliberalisation of the sector. We have so many people coming through doing PhDs now. We have limited amounts of work available. And so there has to be in some way uh, the possibility of sort of weeding people out. Those who are no longer able to contain their anxiety, as David uh, describes here, and some of the other participants did in fact leave, those who were deemed not able to cope with the pressure, they may be kind of weeded out or they get to the point where they kind of weed themselves out and say, that's it, I'm not doing it anymore. So, for example, one of my participants, uh, an astrophysicist, uh, got to the point where she said, I'm just going to go and work elsewhere. I don't need to be in academia anymore. So... The anxiety experienced by all of my 44 participants is very much a product of this particular moment that we are facing within higher education now. So in the first instance, we can think of anxiety as being a kind of symptom of this issue. It reflects the neoliberalising landscape of universities, but also the precarious working conditions of the, of the participants in my project. But I really want to kind of emphasise here that I don't think anxiety is just a kind of residual effect. So it's not just a kind of side effect of what's happening, like, oh, people are a bit anxious by all of these things. I think it really is feeding back into this context. It's informing and shaping the context in which we're working. So I've tried to kind of gesture towards anxiety as being this tactic of governance because I think it's really kind of pivotal in aiding the creation of the type of entrepreneurial academic, which I've mentioned, the academic who aids competition, 
who ensures a kind of continuous drive towards so-called excellence, whatever that might be, but also whilst adding value to this increasingly marketised sector. And those who were deemed uh, not capable of the requisite quality or quantity of work now required of good, obedient academic subjects may be weeded out of the sector entirely. And I'm sure at least some of you here are going through a kind of uh, ref process as we speak where perhaps you've been asked to rank your own outputs and decide if they're world leading or maybe just, you know, internationally excellent. <laughs> So I never get through to the end of these papers without some kind of snide remark, my apologies. Um, so I wanted to finish just by um, mentioning Engin Eisen's work, he's at QMUL, um, because I found this concept, it's a kind of technical concept, but I think it, it does something interesting in terms of even uh, policy discussions here. His idea of neuroliberalism. Now, in the neoliberal university, we're supposed to be rational, forward-thinking, competitive academics. We're supposed to be kind of engaged in the cut and thrust of these processes. But I think uh, my research has shown that actually all of these kinds of uh, attributes, particularly things like forward planning, rational thinking about the future, are made almost impossible by the working conditions under which casualised academics are increasingly facing. So while we're supposed to be thinking about planning our next grant application, publication, getting promoted, in fact many of us are kind of overrun by all sorts of other concerns and anxieties. And so I would say it's not a case that we're now governed in spite of our anxieties, but we're governed through them. And I think that makes a real difference about how we then treat the issue of anxiety. So Engin says that um, this neuroliberalism, as he's described it, because he wants to foreground the issue of emotion uh, rather than a sort of rational actor. He says it takes as its subject one who is anxious, under stress, and increasingly insecure. So if we begin to think about this in a kind of more politicised way, then we can understand that actually anxiety isn't almost an accident. Anxiety is something that's driving these processes of competition. We're only going to be these good neoliberal subjects if we're worried about the implications of not doing that. So it seems to me that actually this kind of idea of the neurotic academic is instructive not just when we think about individual employee experiences, but when we think about the wider sector. So the neurotic academic is increasingly responsibilised for their own neuroses, for their own stress, for their own anxieties, for their own well-being and health. Now, I should also say I'm not using this neurotic academic phrase um, to kind of pathologise this experience and, because I really do include myself in this. But I want to kind of point to this pivotal function that I think anxiety plays increasingly in our sector as a kind of tool, as an instrument of governance. So it's not incidental, it's not a mere kind of side effect. And I would also like to say that while 
These academics that I've been interviewing over the past few years are increasingly rendered vulnerable through insecurity and they're increasingly responsibilised for their own anxieties and made to feel as if they're not good enough for the demands of the sector. Those who find themselves in more structurally advantageous positions, uh, particularly senior management in universities, have not only failed to challenge some of these processes, but I mean, if we look at something like TEF, the kind of uh, lack of resistance to that is quite striking, but they've kind of aided and abetted some of these processes. And so I end with this kind of idea of the neurotic academic, not just to kind of talk about the individual implications of what's happening on health, well-being, but to also kind of gesture towards the political dangers, I think, of failing to resist. And I hope um, Jonathan, for example, might pick up on that in terms of the um, current ballot on pay and conditions in the panel later. So thank you very much. Thank you.